This episode of the David Suiza podcast brought to you by my friends at the Israeli American Council. And this year, their national summit will be absolutely incredible, not just because I'm going to be there speaking. The theme is Israel together at a time when there's so much division in the Jewish world. It's nice to know that we can all meet up at a place of Jewish unity where we can engage in all kinds of different subjects and learn about what's going on in Israel and the Jewish world. There'll be amazing speakers like Ilan Carr, Netta Barzilai, who won the Eurovision last year, from cultural artists to filmmakers to politicians to professors. It's really a, an amazing experience. It's on December 5th to 8th in South Florida. If you want to register now, go to... Um, I-A-C-K-E-N-E-S dot org. W-W-W dot I-A-C-K-E-N-E-S dot org. And if you use the code J-J-L-A-I-A-C, you get a 10% discount. They have a beautiful ad in this week's Jewish Journal. The Jewish experience you've never had is the IAC National Summit in 2019. And I highly recommend it, and I hope to see you there. So once again, Israeli-American Council is sponsoring the David Suiza podcast and inviting you to check out and to attend the IAC National Summit to get a taste of Jewish unity and diversity. David Suisa, welcome to my podcast. Glenn Yego, my friend, Glenn Yego in the house. How are you, Glenn? Oh, nice to be here. Thanks, David. Yeah, you know, we can pretty much cover half an hour of the podcast with your resume, so I have to figure out a way to summarize it. <laughs> okay. In 10 seconds or less, senior fellow, Milken Institute, and now Jerusalem Institute, economist. Right. I've seen you in action. You go back and forth between Israel and in America for years, and basically you just try to make great things happen, whether it has to do with, um, you know, environmental problems, economic problems, and all that kind of stuff. How do you describe what you well, do, Glenn? Uh, well, nothing ever beats a failure like a try, so we keep trying. <laughs> yeah. Uh, in Israel, Israel is this great laboratory to experiment on, th on solutions, and so we try to uh, look at really tough challenges through the lens of finance and try to solve some problems. And we get a lot of interesting assignments in that area. Give me an example of one of them. Well, there are so many. Maybe uh, start off with the ones that were associated with, uh, uh, you know, gosh, it's been about eight years since you were over during the time of the social protests. I remember those days. Yeah, half a million people almost in the streets. and uh, We would and go there story. every night from Jerusalem. You would take me to the protest on, uh, in Rothschild? Rothschild and Landau, all those streets. And you know, Nordau, what, you know what blew me away is at the time they used to have the Occupation Wall Street protest here in America. Oh, that, that came later. It, we were the first ones to put you up You were tents. the first ones, <laughs> and then they had theirs here. And, you know, we all saw these protests. But the thing that blew me away is that you had these professors on Rothschild. And mm -hmm. in the middle of the protest, you had these, like, academic presentations. You would go down to Tel Aviv at the park with an easel and make a presentation on the democratization of capital. <laughs> well, I never forgot that. 
Well, but always trying to bring it down to the ground uh, on on the problems that the uh, that that the social protest at the time uh, were about. Uh, it was about things like early childhood education. It was about issues that uh, the gaps in society, the cost of living, and the cost of living, the cottage cheese, and it wasn't just. Uh, me, it was a lot, lot of other colleagues that would come down there, uh, including Manu Trachtenberg, yeah, right. Manuel Trachtenberg, who at that time was the head of the National Economic Council, and a number of other people were invited all the time to try to say, well, how do we have this problem about affordable housing or early childhood education or trying to finance uh, social enterprises? And that was really the focus. So, Yeah, but what those, I found is that a certain culture of impatience and uh, a spirit of solution searching Whereas a protest in itself is not enough. Mm-hmm. And this is the thing that I got from you in Trachtenberg and so forth, is that Israelis were just not satisfied with just protesting. They just, there's this impatience to kind of solve problems. And that's where sort of you guys came in, right? Yeah, there, there is, a, I think a lot of times in, in Israel, one of the things I've noticed over the years is, you know, a lot of people suffer from claustrophobia. And in Israel, we suffer from claustrophilia. We, we want to be more and more close together. So people really want to talk and, and think through and talk and talk about issues. You remember and, that place you took me to late at night? It was this really unusual oh, house, kind of a community house with different people were living. A community housing. Yeah. And, and they had diff- experts in different fields. They were all living together in this kind of edgy part of oh, Tel Aviv. Do you uh, remember in, that? In Yafo, you're right, near uh, the flea market. Near right, and you have a, yet, yet an artist, and there was a poet and so forth, oh, and then we had this meeting. It's and, my family there. <laughs> and, and you would talk about, you know, how to bring more affordable housing to Tel Aviv, correct? Right, right. And it, it continued to work on that problem. And But we, we what a uh, concrete thing that came out of, the, uh, uh, of those efforts was uh, the effort to finance, uh, to have a... Uh, a fund that would actually finance social enterprises. So uh, uh, work after the protest was uh, we, we did one of our laboratory sessions again for the National Economic Council. At that time, a colleague of mine, Eugene Candle, was the, the head of it. And the idea was to come up with some way to fund social enterprises of people to start businesses, social businesses, or businesses with a profit for purpose if, if they weren't nonprofits. Uh, to solve that. And many, many good things came out of that. There was a tender that was done that's funded uh, social private equity funds. Uh, Hanoch uh, Barkat is a fellow who runs, if you ever are in Tel Aviv, you should eat at Liliot's, the best kosher I've restaurant. I've been there. Yeah, Amazing. best kosher restaurant in Tel Aviv. Some yeah. people say the only kosher restaurant, but that's not true. Where the people <laughs> who work there are from, like, you know, it's a social convicts. Business. And uh, and then um, also uh, in 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 Jerusalem now at Bet Anatijo Anatijo's house, very fine Italian restaurant. It's also a social business uh, that's uh, funded by a social private equity firm, then and, and takes people that are youth at risk and turns them into the culinary trades and and, and chef in culinary cooking. Uh, wait, wait, staff, and it's just—it's just a fantastically successful businesses. It's Five coffee houses in the country. Because we, we always talk about, you know, we need more funding, more funding, but it's not as simple as just throwing money at problems, right? I mean, you, how do you, you lose make money sure that way? Yeah. <laughs> how, how do you? I mean, a big part of what you've done when when involved with money and the financing is to make sure that the money works best, right? How do you do that? Well, to put it to work, uh, again, to try to uh, come up with business plans and, and help uh, d- develop models, financial models, that can be sustaining. 
so that people can go through a work training program. Uh, that was uh, there were two tenders given. One that went to uh, uh, to Duales, which was the private equity fund. Another one went to the um, uh, to to a revolving loan fund. Two nonprofits uh, that were hard to get uh, to get capitalized and to get credit. So, so those sort of uh, concrete solutions came out of that particular uh, story. Now, speaking of solutions, you've brought some fellows in uh, from around the world, right? Mm-hmm. And then to come and uh, take advantage of Israeli know-how that you train, and then they go back to Nigeria, wherever countries, and they kind of put that to work. Give me an example of something. You mentioned Nigeria earlier. Uh, Nigeria is a good story. Right now we have... Uh, 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 Tamilo Mutabai, a long uh, Nigerian name I've learned how to say, uh, who is uh, a master's student, finished his degree in Nigeria and came over. He's currently working at the Agricultural Research Institute in Israel, which is, uh, has developed 70% of all of the seed and plant science patents in the country. One of the powerhouse things about Israel is developing climate-smart agriculture and low-water uh, seeds and 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 hothouses, and incubate places that that you can grow plants and extend growing seasons. Uh, his particular project is working on cassava. Cassava is a major protein source, and so if you go around Africa, you see little cassava huts where people are chopping the cassava yuca plant. And uh, every morning, 32 million uh, 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 farmers there live off of that. And it's a major source of food security in, in Nigeria, which is uh, parts of Nigeria are is fragile. Though it's a very wealthy country in some ways, there are parts of us where Boko Haram and, and some of the real uh, uh, uglier sides of, uh, of terrorism are, are, are cultivated. So what they're doing, what he's doing is uh, uh, basically the, life st- the shelf life of a cassava plant after you harvest it is anywhere between 16 to 32 hours. Uh, so with some technology out of the Volcani Institute, which is the agricultural research organization of the Ag- Agriculture Ministry, they're able to field dry the, uh, the cassava and then store it in cooperatives for up to five months. And you, the problem about cassava is about 40% of it's lost in, port, in post-harvest. Mm. So we're in a world right now, but the challenges of the world, we're going from 7.3 billion people on the planet uh, to closer to 9.5 to 10 billion people on the planet. That's a real problem because you have to produce 60% more food uh, by 2035 than you have in 2019. This is so fascinating to me because, you know, protein is so crucially important. Mm -hmm. And, you know, you don't get it from vegetables and grain and rice and so forth. But if you lose 40% of it uh, from rotting after harvest, just the waste of it, and you can capture some of that, you, you start to build a bridge to food security into the future. And is this something that can be spread to other areas of the world? Oh, yeah. Cassava is a major uh, uh, source throughout Africa. When is it coming to Trader Joe's or something? (laughs) I haven't seen it. Actually, you do have it. It's it's called yuca plant here in Uh, California. Okay. Got it. Got it. Yuca plant. Speaking of solutions and agriculture and environment and water and so forth, um, I know a few years ago you were involved with uh, the memorandum of understanding between Israel and the governor, Jerry Brown, at the time, California governor, in terms of exchange of Mm know-how between both countries and with uh, California in severe drought, 
talk about that for a sec. Well, that was a, that was a great project and uh, a, a really insightful one uh, by both the governor and the prime minister to launch an effort like that, not, not only exchanging knowledge, but developing new knowledge that could be applied in the field. Uh, so our first project was to work on water, of course, during those serious uh, periods of, of the drought, uh, especially fresh water, not only surface water, but looking at, at groundwater too and, and, uh, and aquifers. Um, and uh, Israel's fairly advanced in that whole process because we, as you had they no say choice. here, yeah, <laughs> as, you know, they say in the, in the Torah, you know, in, uh, you know, it's a land that doesn't have any water. It's not like the Nile flood. <laughs> You, you, think that, you think that turned out to be a blessing in the skies, no, the fact that we had so little natural resources, well, that's which a, kind of put the that's emphasis. A, that's a really good point, because if you think about where our current technological advantage is, uh, which is generating 40% of all exports out of the country are, are science and knowledge-based exports in technology. And that comes because we had scarcity. Um, in, in, in food, in, uh, air, in land, uh, an arid land, uh, and arable land, which, which uh, was a, a real constraint. And food and water, we have energy constraints. We didn't know about the gas yet uh, 70 years ago. And, uh, and, 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 in, and in health and in population and in education, all those areas were parts of scarcity. And those local challenges in Israel have now become global challenges. That's what we're working on now uh, with the UN and with all the multilateral and bilateral development agencies in the world is to focus on the sustainable development goals uh, to try to overcome those gaps. So There's back to the water story with California, it was amazing. You know, you have very little desalination here and that's, uh, uh, and very little recycling. And those are the two main things that Israel has and continues to build upon. We now recycle close to 87% of all our water at least once, and if you think about tertiary and, and, and later secondary and tertiary uh, recycling, which is also part of the story, uh, the closest other country in the world is Spain at around 17%, and California was really low at around 3% in terms of And Israel recycling. is 87%. 87%. So there's a huge gap in the world, and uh, even in drip agriculture, which uh, precision agriculture and Netafim, one of the great discoveries that came out of recycling shower water in Kibbutz Chatzirim in the south, and now three other kibbutzim that formed, built a $2 billion business off of that technology. So those were the types of innovations that were translatable, but to adapt that technology to California or to Nigeria or to Rwanda or Kenya or these other places or in India, uh, requires a lot of work. And then coming up with new solution sets. It's not that we can run victory laps because we're so smart. Uh, we've had a lot of <laughs> needs to, to be industrious and improvising and innovative. But and, you, and you can't automatically transplant. I mean, there are cultural factors as well. You well know? And, and is, it, is, is California more conducive, you know, or less conducive than well, Israel is to recycling and, and so forth? What kind of success has California had in terms of adapting Israeli know-how? Oh, well, quite a bit. There are close to around 60 projects on the ground that uh, were generated at that point. I know uh, there's since, a major recycling well, uh, in near San Diego, right? Yeah, well, that was, that was certainly IDE, which was an Israeli company later partially sold 
uh, to, to China. Um, uh, but the other companies spun out of that, as which happens in, in, des in desalination. You now have companies like Fluence, which are very active in decentralized uh, water treatment. But the big San Diego plant was a, is a great idea. Um, but nowadays, you know, you can move lot to highly centralized uh, 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 production, but distributed production. Has that made an impact? Oh, yes. I mean, uh, you, is that sort of public? you speak to the governor, would he say, you know, yeah, yeah, it's if, a situation? If you, I guess if we you, don't hear to, about the drought as yeah, much as Interesting, the current Secretary of Natural Resources here in California under Governor Newsom was the head of the water sub-cabinet under Governor Brown, Wade Crowfoot. And he was a great thought leader in this area. And uh, we did the work in Israel and we came over here, Secretary Schultz, uh, former Secretary Schultz that hosted us at Stanford with the sub-cabinet and a number of projects got started converting a drip in areas like alfalfa. I mean, California uh, exports close to 40 million tons of alfalfa. That's water. And that <laughs> comes right out since the day of the MOU, right. like and, six and, some years ago. And, and they would flood yeah. the fields to do mm. so. Wow. So now there was, with the state, the state treasurer funded a program to test that in the Imperial Valley and, and, and other places to see if you could adapt drip irrigation to alfalfa. And that worked out pretty well. Same story in terms of dairy farms to corn. You know, you take, uh, you take cow manure, right? And, you know, the, the, mm -hmm. the, the, they don't just produce milk. And since you have a nutrient crisis and, 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 and problem in terms of the nutrient cycle, uh, you can take that waste and recycle it into fertigation, not just mm. nutrient, wow. uh, uh, of, of fertilizing uh, the corn plants with the, and, and you make it more sustainable. So that's not been sure done in, eat corn in dairy soon, corn. But I know what you're saying. The, yeah. You know, it, it strikes me, uh, Glenn, is we're so inundated by bad news, mm -hmm. whether from D.C. or wherever, you know, we're certainly in our political environment right now that's so divisive. It's just rare to hear any piece of good news. And I'm thinking we ought to do a major story on a progress report on the MOU. Well, not happened. only... It, and it, it and was, what's happened in California. And, the, and if there's good news to share about the impact that the MOU has had here, we ought to write about it. Maybe yeah. you can help or, us. Or, or rain catchment. Was, I'm just thinking Tell of them as we Tell me about rain catchment. So rain catchment's a, a big area, too. You know, when you think about it, all over Jerusalem, uh, there are cisterns, right? That's since ancient times, you always dig out cisterns. Um, and so uh, one high school science teacher uh, uh, in, in Jerusalem just converted all of the schools to uh, wastewater, to rain catchment, so that during the wet season, all the toilets in the public schools are flushed by, by rain, ca rain capture. So those are little small steps. There's not any magic bullets in any of these problems where you have scarcity. And what, what Israel has done in its own development is to decouple the use of natural resources with growth of uh, less water and higher agricultural productivity, less energy and more output. So there's monitoring of all the manufacturing plants. That was another company that came over here in one of the, one of the labs that we did on, uh, with the California Energy Commission, uh, LightApp, which was a, an application that monitors every electrical device in a manufacturing plant. 140 manufacturing plants uh, have been tested on it, and they're saving up to close to 40% of their energy. So those are those types of things to, to save scarce resources and conserve them. You know, it's funny. I've, I've known you for a long time, and you and I never talk about politics because you're— <laughs> They're so boring. You know, what? <laughs> so there are like two Israels. Well, it's so predictable, isn't There's it? There's the huh? Israel that's in the news, 
the Israel of politics, which is a total mess, and some consider it even a train wreck, and it's so divisive and controversial, and the incredible difficulty of making peace with the Palestinians and so forth. There's mm -hmm. that Israel. And then you're smack dab in the middle of the other Israel, the Israel of innovation. Well, that's, that's really uh, pretty much uh, what has the things that have to do with our national future there. It's not uh, the, the crisis, the headline risk and the headline crises are predictable, but they're usually overstated in terms of their impact. What's yeah, really going on is people are going to work every day. Trying yeah, to. yeah, that's that's the other thing with community dialogue is all too often we just we talk and talk and talk and talk and politics just generates an enormous amount of conversation, concern, anger and it's so like forth. sports, you know. It does. It does. <laughs> Meanwhile, there are things happening on the ground. Mm -hmm. There are things happening in Nigeria that you're involved with, in mm -hmm. California, Kenya, Rwanda, California, and so forth. Northern and, Israel, southern Israel. I mean, just I can tell you so many stories. Uh, but I'm sure Bedouin at some community. point you have uh, <laughs> political conversations with your friends in Israel. Do you get involved at all? I mean, how do you see that whole world, Glenn? Because hmm. it's hard to kind of avoid the subject that dominates so much mm -hmm. of the conversation in Israel? Boy, that is a really good question. Um, what, what, what's precise? And politics covers so many uh, sins. I mean, in terms <laughs> of your conversation that you have with your friends and when, you know, your Shabbat table and so forth, right. since it comes up, are you totally kind of separate from that world? You just well, sort of doing it. Is the government involved with some of your projects? Oh, quite a bit. We, we work for the government. Did, we didn't mention that, but uh, our Israeli Fellows Program, which is uh, uh, the Milken Fellows Program, is a key aspect of the uh, reform of the Civil Service Commission. Uh, that Civil Service Commission is, is it's a pathway for young people to enter public service. Uh, which, where they come which cabinet member? Uh, well, all of them. We 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 okay. we we place fellows in in many of the ministries. I okay. Have, we have much greater demand for fellows than we have supply. So you and you so, help uh, you assist really, and you just don't get involved politically with well, either side. No, I, well, I th I think we we talk about the solutions and the issues rather than the things that uh, we're not defined by the conflicts really. I, uh, right. I mean, I just as you were mentioning it, I was trying to think. Where does that come up? One project that we've worked on that was less of a single project but more like a career was working on uh, the problem of sewage treatment between the municipality of Jerusalem, the municipality of Bet Sahur, and Bet Lechem, and Bethlehem, and uh, the you know roughly around 300,000 people that live between Jerusalem and the Dead Sea, which goes through area zone A, B, mm. and C. So that's pretty political, right? Right. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, so we had, we were invited by Berkeley to have a conference on Israeli-Palestinian waterways. There are, depending on how you count it, five to seven rivers or watersheds in Israel, all of which are crossing, all hydrologically cross, cross every conceivable political or possible boundary and how <laughs> that you, you can navigate imagine. That? So we were, we were having breakfast all together with our, our Palestinian colleagues who we work with. And uh, uh, at the hotel, and we went across to the law school where the conference was going to be, and it was being picketed um, uh, by uh, the BDS folks. And, and uh, my Palestinian colleague, who's a, a hydrologist from Ramallah, uh, turned to me and turned to this uh, other, fellow, uh, other colleague from, uh, uh, from one of the water companies. And he's, he said, you know, he said, look, uh, I don't get it, Glenn. Why, 
why are they picketing against us? We actually work together. <laughs> and I said, Montar, you answered your question, your own question. And I, you know, I've been working with that guy for nine years, and uh, we've never talked about politics. We talk about sewage and recycling nutrients to dates and <laughs> and other mundane issues. And uh, well, that's one of the most tragic parts of the conflict for me is the anti-normalization movement, where even good things are kind of shunned. I remember once I was at Ariel and. They mm -hmm. had these technology on water conservation and recycling, and they were saying that some of the Palestinian leaders refused to accept the Israeli offer uh, to actually run the, the recycling. They had to do it on their own, just out of a sense of honor or who knows what. Hmm. Uh, well, you know, that's, that I, I think increasing that's decreasing. I think increasingly more people, especially at the sub-sovereign level, because nothing we're working on compromises anybody's sense of sovereignty, who treats your sewage or how you, uh, how you deal with, uh, with, with yeah, fertilizing I, dates. I, I get a sense that things are trying to become a little more pragmatic on the ground mm -hmm. because, you know, enough is enough already. You know, we, we, this has been lasting yeah, for so, so long. You see that in the arts, too. I mean, at the Jerusalem season of culture, you see that every year. Meanwhile. Uh, we have the big, uh, uh, the, the Jerusalem uh, uh, Arab Jewish orchestra plays, right. and you'd, you'd think peace just broke out every time they have a concert. Meanwhile, <laughs> a major conference right mm -hmm. up your alleys happening on June 25th in Bahrain. Yes. And after two years, you know, the deal of the century, like they say. And for those who haven't heard, this is going to be sort of the economic part of the quote-unquote peace plan, right? And this is right up your alley, isn't it? Sort of how do we improve the lives on the ground? Well, it seems very central. I mean, there's nothing bad can come from doing that, of, uh, of improving uh, daily life. And uh, I think that's something that uh, uh, everybody's been thinking about for a long time, uh, certainly over the last 25 years, and especially since the uh, disengagement in 2005. And, uh, and, in, and, and in this current government uh, in Israel as well, a uh, number of uh, checkpoints have been declining. A uh, number of casualties over the whole period have been declining. Uh, so um, it's not solving all the problems, but there, there has the, the idea of actually having uh, zooming out of the problem, oh, not out of the problems, but zooming out and taking a look at, well, how do we build transport, trade, uh, elect energy connections. I mean, that was one of the real breakthroughs under... Um, under uh, uh, Fayyad. Well, Fayyad started it, but really I was thinking, my, I was thinking of, uh, of, uh, of, of Pauli, uh, of uh, General Mordechai, uh, who was, uh, was responsible, the government commission for the organization of government uh, activities in the territories who really started to, uh, uh, fr from the IDF. Which decade was that? Hmm? Which decade? Oh, just right now. He just, uh, he just um, left uh, military service about a year ago. But he was, the one that was a, he was the one that got agreements about being able to proceed on the water treatment on 10 electrical plants, uh, increased of, of housing being built. Um, in so, the territories? Yes. Uh -huh. mm -hmm. So, I mean, there, there's, uh, there's, there's, there's a lot of activities that go on. The, the work uh, that was done uh, in Rawabi, the, uh, starting to build uh, new communities. There hadn't been a Palestinian town built 
since 1948. And all we hear, though, is that there's problems, right? It can't proceed for one reason or another. Well, a lot of people are invested in those problems, yeah. and they're more invested in problems than solutions. Mm -hmm. That's the problem. They're over-invested in, in, uh, in, in, in problems. The that, conflict. And in and, and the conflict, because it generates higher revenues. I mean, if you build tunnels and smuggle things, it's, uh, you make more money <laughs> right. if you're a corrupt Hamas official than you do if you uh, create a market uh, uh, of trade. And you look at the Palestinian Authority, they've already refused to attend the conference on June 25th, ostensibly that should improve the lives of their people. How do you explain that? Well, I don't, I don't understand it completely either, but um, obviously every... I really, I'm not, it's not that mm -hmm. obvious to me at all, actually, now, now that I said that, uh, exactly why or how. But um, people make political decisions based on uh, incentives that are different than, uh, than other, how other decisions get made. And there's a, when people have power, there's a, actually Danny Kahneman used to write about that with Tversky, mm. uh, the psychologist who, who won the Nobel Prize. <laughs> Of looking at that, there's consider uh, considerable loss aversion uh, if you if you might lose power by dispersing it. Right. And that democracy requires you to disperse power, not concentrate it. Right. That's just a a human a human incentive, and mm -hmm. uh, we often overlook those things because we just judge things sort of on the surface. And you would think that they would right. love something that would help their people. It's like when I was right. in Uganda. That all these water problems. Meanwhile, there's enormous amounts of water well, underground, I, I, but they're only digging for the oil because the oil is what builds the palaces on the mountains yeah. for the dictators, and the water well, would empower their people. There is, you know, I mean, crony capitalism and kleptocracies exist all over the world, and there's certainly been our, we've had our share of problems with corruption uh, right. in Israel as well. But if if I, I I think part of the problem this loss aversion issue can I tell a joke real quick? Go for it, please. Okay. Well, I really always uh, consider the conflict issue a lot like that Woody Allen joke he 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 tell he always told about the fact of the guy who goes takes his brother to see the psychiatrist because his brother thinks he's a chicken, right? And uh, it comes back in and he says, "Look, your brother thinks he's a chicken. He's got to be." Um, put into a mental hospital for the rest of his life. Nothing. He says, no, no, you can't do that. You can never do that to my brother. And he says, well, maybe you should come to see me as a psychiatrist you know, to figure out why. He says, well, why, why do you oppose that? He says, well, what are we going to do for eggs? <laughs> and so I think that's part of the problem with the conflict is people are very invested in it. And once you get rid of the conflict and you start working on hard things like water, food, energy, health, and creating jobs, um, uh, then uh, what do we do for the eggs? You know, <laughs> that we got, uh, that, that we had some sort of have poor impulse control to stop eating them. Yeah, I think it's it, it's really tragic when there's an incentive to mm -hmm. maintain a really uh, so, bad, bad situation, so which it is now. Trying to create circumstances where people work together and they work together on problems through finding solutions uh, is an easier, actually much easier than uh, just prolonging. I often think, Glenn, uh, human nature is human nature, no matter where you go, no matter which culture, which religion. And the reason, you know, uh, societies differ is not because of the people. It's because of the systems under which well, they the, operate. Yeah, I, I'm an economist, so I believe in incentives. So the, there, there are, in econo economists always uh, oftentimes use obscure words or words to obscure the obvious, but there are perverse incentives. And perverse yes. incentives uh, oftentimes uh, rule. 
but uh, we're trying to create, I think, and Israel's built on the concept of trying to create positive ones. Exactly. We want to elevate the, the sort of fundamental incentives of wanting to feed your family, of needing to drink and needing to eat and so forth. These are real fundamental. And in many parts of the world, they're absolutely critical. They don't have the luxury of having needs like, you know, like well, we may have here. Their basic Maslow's needs are still not, you know, fulfilled. Well, that's, that's, the, that's the clock that's running on us right now, is if you look at the age structure of the world, of this population growth going from 7 billion and change up to close to 10 billion. Uh, and if we don't have girls staying in education past uh, 12 years of age, then the population gets out of control and really breaks another big demographic barrier and goes to 12 billion, which is really uh, nearly unsustainable on the planet. So the main thing that has to happen is to really bridge those circumstances, and it has to happen very quick. Otherwise, we don't have a, a usually when you have a younger age population, that's great about Israel because we have a we have an underdeveloped country's age structure. We have a very young age structure, but we have a developed world economy. Most of the world has both of them being undeveloped. Uh, but if you have a huge age structure, younger age structure, and you don't create jobs, you have Gaza. <laughs> you have... You don't have a demographic benefit from having younger people who go to work to support the dependent population that's either children or people over 65. But you have a demographic bomb that blows up in your face. And those are the challenges that the world faces. And that's why the Sustainable Development Goals that all the countries in the world signed, including Israel, are so important. Uh, so a lot of these problems you refer to around the world are very prevalent in uh, Israel's region, the 21 countries that surround Israel. And if you project out over the next 50 to 100 years, it's just going to get worse. Right. And I think one of the problems is that the value system leans so much to the emotional side, mm -hmm. which is, you know, pride, ego, honor, which really doesn't feed your family. Mm -hmm. And and if that value system needs to inch a little closer to real physical uh, needs of feeding your family and, and sort of, you know, how do we becoming more pragmatic? I'm mm -hmm. sensing a little bit of that. I mean, just look at Saudi Arabia. Pragmatically, they need to fight back against Iran because they're threatened. I guess that's pragmatic. Mm -hmm. But it's just that value system needs to expand out in a way sort of the, the value system of Israel. Mm -hmm. You know, that solution-minded approach beyond just security because we need Israel's help to fight off terrorism or to fight off Iran. But, you know, will the region ever get to a point, Glenn, where they will put these basic fundamental incentives of taking care of your family and drinking water and all these basic things that are so obvious to us? Mm -hmm. Will they put that ahead of the, the other? Well, I, I, I think they're reconcilable. I think that, that uh, you know, having, um, having visions of, of, of what your country or your nation or your people look like 10 or 15 years down the line can, does coincide and, and necessarily coincide with solving those problems. Yeah, but when you have those perverse incentives, you know, with those right. dictators. Well, when you have money flowing to them. I mean, that's, and that's money flowing of, to them, exactly. I mean, again, I don't want to be too crass about it, but that is a part of the problem. Yeah, and uh, we, we have total faith that you will fix all those problems, Glenn. <laughs> Hardly. I, total, no, I think the, 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 the real story behind what happened in California was that Israel learned from the positive experiences of that MOU and then created other MOUs with Africa and, chi and, and China and India 
And uh, uh, what positively happened over the, over the last 10 years was that Israel did start to look outwards and build bridges to those other countries, uh, which are the countries that will have the the majority share of 70% of all global growth will happen in those countries, not in the advanced economies of Europe and the United States, but in those developing economies, and um, we need to be their friends. Have you been involved with some of those other MOUs? Oh, yes, 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 very much so. We're, we're working a lot on those right now. And a big thing that's going on right now is you have these fellows that are coming to Israel. That's a big priority that's, for you right now, that's, right? Yes, that, that's our, our um, we're, we're continuing to, to train our next generation of, of, uh, of policy and program leaders on uh, working on this. Where do you recruit so, them from? Uh, well, uh, the Israelis come to us, uh, they're, they're really re remarkable people, usually after three years of army duty and three years in, in, uh, in most of them three years in, in officers, so they've done that. Sometimes they've done the gap year of training uh, and then in they high apply, school, so right? there's seven. Well, then they go to India, and then they get, okay, a, uh, and then they get an undergraduate degree, and, and by the time I see them, they're in their early 30s. And they're ready to, 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 to give back and to, and to continue doing what they've already done, is, is give a lot. But you the, have from other countries And then from well. the other countries, we, we recruit um, really through, uh, through the universities and, uh, and, and, th and through the, the foreign ministry. So if somebody uh, that's listening come, to this show would be interested, how would they find out more? I would go to our website at uh, www.milkeninnovationcenter.org. Milken Innovation Center. Center.org. And, uh, and uh, that's a good place to start. And, um, and we're, we're partnered with the, uh, with the Blum Center for Developing Economies here in California. They're at all the UC campuses. And um, I just, just Google uh, uh, Blum Centers for Developing Economies, and you'll see what they're doing here in California on that. You know, when I, when I meet with you in L.A., you're so American, and I see you at the Milken Conference, you know, in front of all these really, you know, influence, um, influencers and major bigwigs, and you talk, you know, you're American, and you know so much about what's going on here, and then I meet you in Jerusalem, and you're completely Israeli. Right. You're, well, you're, I'm hyphenated. You're totally hyphenated. <laughs> but, you, you know, really, it's you a, go back and forth. Well, you know, it's like that old joke about the fact I'm... Uh, Either American, Israeli, or Israeli American, depending on which direction you're reading in, right to left or left to right. <laughs> and, yeah, and you have zero accent in either one. How did you? Um, where did your love for Israel start? Your connection. Oh, I was I was in a, I was in a youth movement, uh, you know, as a kid, and then where? Which city? In uh, I was I, I grew up in Louisiana, mm -hmm. and I was in the Texas, Oklahoma, Louisiana region of Young Judea mm -hmm. at the time. And uh, my so daughter was, went on Young Judea for her gap year. Sure. Sure. Yeah. So um, that all happened, and uh, it was a big part of my life. And that's how I got to Israel. Were you part? Your parents part of a synagogue? In Louisiana? Oh yeah, yeah, def or definitely. Conservative. Oh well, you know, it was one of those immigrant synagogues that started off Orthodox and ended up being conservative. And your first trip to uh, Israel uh, was in 1968. Right, a year after the war. Right. That's uh, so. I was there. Uh, yep. And you remember that trip? Oh, sure, certainly. Yeah. And then, changed my life. And then how did it change your life? Oh, I just fell in love with the place. Mm -hmm. Why? Well, hmm, just pretty much everything. 
the that's food, I, the people, yeah. <laughs> the I, weather. You know. Yeah, it's like a mikvah. What I try when I it's, try It's to an acquired design. taste. It is an acquired taste. A little rough it's around not for the edges. <laughs> it's not. But you get you, you get not. you get used to it. it it's uh, it's entertaining. Life. It's There's a street life to Israel that right. I find a lot of Israelis who move to America. As, as they say in Hebrew, Chaim Ba'aretz. You know, you live in the country. <laughs> you do. You do. And then, how long have you been doing this back and forth? Well, let's see. I was there for, you know, a good deal of time between the ages of 18 to uh, to 24. And then uh, I'd go, I didn't go back for a long time. And then I started going back about um, 25 years ago on some assignments professionally, and then basically moved back uh, about 10 years ago for most of the year. Oh, amazing. Well, you know, I want to really thank you for coming into the studios, Glenn. I'm especially interested in the impact that that has been made in California and all Mm -hmm. these projects that you bring up. So I want to follow up on that with you. Well, that'll be fun. Yeah, Yeah, we'd love to work with you on that. Yeah, and then I'll I'll see you in Israel this summer. That would be great. Yeah. (laughs) Okay. Thanks again, Glenn. Okay, thank you. Okay, my friend. Once again, this episode of the David Suiza podcast was brought to you by the Israeli-American Council and their national summit, which will be on December 5th to 8th in South Florida. If you want to register now, go to um, iacknes.org.